Welcome to the Sphinx Thinks podcast. I'm Georgina Holmes and we'll be progressing through time to uncover the mysterious world of life on Earth. From the emergence of life and evolution of us to the first civilizations and innovations that got us where we are today. I hope you enjoy the show. Pigs have only got one thing. They don't milk, they don't pull plows, they don't grow wool. You eat them and that's it. So by eating pigs, you are showing that you are rich enough to keep an animal, or a whole lot of animals, that you are going to use once only just for meat, and that's all. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Peter Roy Conway. He works at Durham University, and we'll be discussing zoo archaeology. It's a great introduction for anybody who either doesn't know much about the topic or wants to learn a bit more about his applications, from agriculture to society. I really hope you enjoy the episode. To set the scene, can you tell us a bit about why and when people began to move to adopting agriculture and perhaps the global variations and why this was different across the globe? Uh, it depends where you are. Uh, the earliest agriculture we know of is in the Near East, um, uh, northern Lebanon, southeastern Turkey, northern Syria, that sort of area, and probably kind of down towards Israel and um, a bit less certainly in western Iran, running down the Tigris-Euphrates, that sort of area there. And the earliest signs go back to about 11, 11 and a half thousand years, something of that sort. Uh, and from there, it spreads out. Um, eastwards is less well known, but its tra- trail into Europe is pretty well understood. Um, about, oh, um, seven or eight thousand years ago, it's in Greece. Uh, what is interesting about the spread of agriculture is that the earliest farming in Southeast Europe is little villages with small houses made of mud bricks, just like the Near East. Uh, they've got a wide variety of cultivated plants, cereals and pulses, eight or ten different species. They've got domestic sheep and goat, which are very common. They've got a few cattle and a few pigs. And that is the agricultural regime that slots into Southeast Europe kind of Greece and the Balkans, which is an environment pretty similar to the Near East. So it's, it's the same kind of agriculture in the same kind of environment. And then agriculture gets to northern, uh, sort of into, into Hungary or thereabouts, and it's facing the central European big forests for the first time. And the spread stops for about six or 800 years. And then suddenly around um, 5,500 BC, Agriculture launches right across Europe and the rate of spread is about eight kilometers per year, something like that. And it goes all the way from Hungary right, right west to oh, about Paris or thereabouts. And uh, it's a completely different kind of agriculture. It's only got a few species of crop plant. Many of them have dropped out. Cattle are the most common. Sheep and goat are pretty scarce. So the whole system has been kind of rejigged to fit the central European environment. And then just as rapidly as it started, it stops along kind of northern Germany, northern France. And there's a long frontier there um, because it comes to the end of the nice, easily worked soils that it can find under those big forests. And it stops for a a good over a thousand years. And then quite rapidly around 4000 BC, it then spreads north into Britain and into southern Scandinavia. But it's the same kind of agriculture, pretty much, with, with cattle predominant. Uh, and uh, for some reason, it moves further forward. And what that reason is, we spend an awful lot of time arguing about. 
So that's basically, I mean, if, if you're talking about Britain, it's 6,000 years ago, 4,000 BC. Thank you. That was, that was a fascinating um, summary of the adoption of agriculture. So what about areas like the Americas and Australia, where agriculture wasn't adopted till much later? And why is it that these regions of the world don't transition to agriculture as early as in the Near East, for example? It's a more, uh, uh, more gradual start in the Americas. Uh, things like squash and things like that, root crops, seem to start, they, they preserve much less well. Uh, with things like wheat, barley, maize and all the rest of it, you can scorch a seed and it will preserve in its carbonized form and you can recognize it. Uh, you know, we found tens of thousands of these things. But stuff like squash, you know, marrow, the soft things, they preserve much less well. So it's much more difficult to plot what's going on. So uh, it's really when maize starts to get, uh, maize, a kind of an equivalent grass to wheat and barley, starts to get going in Central America, that you can track it and it then runs up north into North America a bit later. Uh, if, if you want a system in between those two in time, China starts on rice. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what the dates are now, seven or 8,000, something like that. And because it's, because it's a cereal-based agriculture on rice, the system looks much more similar to ours. Australia, which you mentioned, is a really interesting case because we've tended to assume, we, we European archaeologists, right? We are the heirs of the colonial period, all the rest of it. We, uh, are, we, we kind of know in inverted commas that hunter-gatherers are primitive. They don't understand things. They just live as children of nature. But of course, um, recent work in Australia has shown that hunter-gatherers modify their environment a great deal. They cultivate, they, well, yes, cultivate is, is too strong a word. They help along some plants that are useful for, um, for food, for making artifacts or whatever. They will burn patches of forest uh, in order to encourage young, uh, fresh green grass, which will attract the kangaroos and the wallabies that they can then ambush and kill and all the rest of it. So they do manipulate their environment, um, which is an intriguing, I, th I think what we should be looking for a lot more of that in Europe. Mm. I'm looking, it would be very difficult to spot. We should be anticipating that it will be there, but I've got no good ideas about how you would see it. So, um, there's a lot of different routes, basically, uh, some of which involve staying as perfectly happy hunter-gatherers uh, because you don't need to change. It's incredible just how different the adoption of agriculture is across the globe. How do we use zoo archaeology and other techniques to, to find this sort of information out? Well, the, the, there are kind of two branches of the, of the science that really bear on Agriculture. I'm speaking mainly about Europe now because that's the area I know. Uh, the animal bones is one, which is what I specialize in, zoo archaeology, or some people call it archaeozoology. Uh, uh, there's a, an arcane debate about which you prefer. Uh, and then there's archaeobotany, which is a study of, you know, carbonized plants and all the rest of it. And they kind of go hand in hand. Um, in the Near East, telling whether a handful of sheep bones at 11,000 years ago is domestic or wild animals is an interesting and very tricky problem. What domestication involves, we, we say, is that the early farmers isolate some of, you know, a, a, a smallish number of animals from the wild gene pool. 
So they are now separate genetically from the wild animals. And once they are separate, then the farmers can start selectively breeding. And what happens invariably with these animals is that the domestic ones get smaller. It's slightly counterintuitive. You'd imagine they get bigger. But actually, the farmers produce smaller animals. So the first real sign you see is animals getting smaller than their wild counterparts. But of course, that will only happen a certain time, and I don't know what I mean by a certain time, after you have domesticated and started the whole process. Maybe, uh, I don't know, um, several dozen generations, 100 years, or I, I don't know. But, but uh, you see the effect, but not the exact moment. And much the same happens with cereal grains. Cereal grains get bigger in contrast to animals. Uh, I think because probably because you're sieving, you gather the, the plants and you're sieving through some kind of um, uh, organic sieve to remove weeds and bits and pieces. And so you remove the smallest cereal grains, is, is my belief. Therefore, you replant a slightly, a slightly biased fraction of the cereal grains, resulting in larger grained crops. So there, there, are, there are visible things that happen to both the animals and the plants, and that's how we spot them. It really is such an exciting technique for following the adoption of agriculture and that sort of thing over time. What excites you most about zoo archaeology? Well, uh, over the last 30 or so years, I think our, our ideas have changed a great deal about especially agriculture in Western Europe. I work in Italy, I work in Denmark, I work in Britain. And um, 30, 40 years ago, we were all fairly convinced that it was the local hunter-gatherers who kind of acquired farming from agricultural neighbours and gradually transformed themselves from hunter-gatherers into farmers. Less and less does that seem to be true. We're getting better and better at spotting uh, domestication in the way that I've described. We're also getting much better at dating things. Now, in the old days, somebody would say, I've got a domestic sheep in the uh, British Lake Mesolithic. Uh, and of course, there were no wild sheep in Britain. There are, there are feral sheep now that have escaped, but there were no original wild sheep. So if you have a sheep bone, it's got to be domestic. Uh, and we would say, oh, that's wonderful. You've got late Mesolithic domestic sheep in small numbers alongside your red deer or whatever. But of course, now, I say now, the last 30 odd years, with the radiocarbon accelerator that can date little tiny samples, you can date that individual sheep bone and discover that it's actually bloody Iron Age or something like that. It's got into the wrong layer. Same thing with cereal grains. More and more and more and more does it look like an abrupt introduction. So what I like looking at is how the latest hunter-gatherers organise their lives and how the earliest farmers then organise their lives when, when, when farming comes into an area. So uh, shall, I, shall I burble on about this for a bit? Of course. Okay. There's not a lot of late Mesolithic evidence in Britain, but there's a lot in Denmark. Uh, and that's really interesting because you've got those big co- Just to note, there was a slight technical glitch in our recording, so this section had to be cut out and the next bit is a continuation of what our conversation was going on to say. That's video calls for you. Wild boar are super animals. You get lots and lots of them on some of the big sites. The big sites in, in places like Denmark, especially, and southern Sweden to some extent, they're great big coastal sites where people were eating thousands and thousands of oysters. So you get huge, great mounds of oyster shell with uh, a lot of stuff like animal bone and artifacts and all the rest of it embedded in those oysters. 
And because the oysters are alkaline, they preserve the bones very nicely. So you can play all sorts of nice games. And a game I really like playing is looking at the age at death of the wild boar. Wild boar are all born in about a three week period in late March and early April. So if you find one up to about two and a half years when their teeth are coming through and the milk teeth are shedding, just like ours do, uh, you can age a wild boar pretty accurately. And on some of those sites, right, some of the Danish sites, you find, for example, wild boar that are three to six months old, and then more that are 15 to 18 months old, and none in between. And a wild boar are three to six months old in their first summer, they are 15 to 18 months old in their second summer. So there's a summer hunting site and they're killing wild boar of both ages, right? Mm -hmm. And they're probably not there in the winter. Other sites, right, some of the big ones on the coast, you've got wild boar that have been killed all the year round. So what you learn from that is that in some of the big settlements, people are actually living on that settlement all the year round. Then there are hunter-gatherers peeling off to different sites at different times of the year, doing different things, but the core settlement is occupied all the year round. And that is, you know, kind of not what we tend to associate with hunter-gatherers. So again, I come back to the hunter-gatherers are not primitive. Uh, some of them are very sophisticated, if you live in the right part of the world. And that is why, for my money, why, one of the reasons why farming took such a long time to spread from northern Germany into Denmark, because there were hunter-gatherers, probably quite large numbers of hunter-gatherers, living in stable settlements, and the farming initial settlements were quite small as well so they were about kind of level pegging in terms of population i think that would be my interpretation of those facts anyway yeah. and that's what you can do with zoo archaeology there's no other way you could tell that those settlements were occupied all the year round that's why i like it yes it really is uh, fascinating and particularly revealing that you know hunter gatherers aren't this primitive society that we previously thought in the past and we can use this evidence to see that they're seasonally sedentary perhaps how did you actually get into zoo archaeology and agriculture and the specifics of this topic oh that that was really uh, I, I was a student in cambridge uh, it is it's the end of september it's 50 years ago in two weeks when i started as an undergraduate and zoo archaeology was very trendy in those days uh, there was a number of really key people in cambridge uh, and I just kind of fell under their spell and thought, this is the way to go. And uh, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, find, find teachers who you like. Uh, and if you plan, I don't know what your plans are, but if you plan to go on and do postgraduate stuff, go to where the teachers are. Maybe stay in the university you start with as an undergraduate. Maybe go somewhere else. Yeah. And if you like Polynesians, go to New Zealand or somewhere like that. Because they, they do very good archaeology in New Zealand. If you want me to witter on about that, I will happily do so. Uh, but there's some very good people in New Zealand. If you like particular things about the Americas, go there because, you know, go to the best teachers. That's always my advice. Yes, I'd, I'd love to do postgraduate research. On that topic, actually, what would your dream research project be? Oh, very, very difficult. Um, uh, all right, here's a scenario. Um, let, let, let's go at the Mediterranean, northwestern Italy, right? Let's imagine a huge cave site which is occupied throughout the Neolithic. So in, in, in northwestern Italy, we're talking about just after 6000 BC, <clears throat> earlier than Britain. And it's, let's suppose it's occupied 
from 6,000 to 3,000 BC. And let's suppose that it's been very well excavated by microstratigraphy, and you've got layer upon layer upon layer beautifully peeled away by the Italians, uh, who then asked me to come and do the animal bones, and they've done all the right sieving and all the rest of it. Uh, and that is precisely the project I'm involved with at the moment. It's absolutely blissful. I've been doing that for quite a long time. But uh, that is the cave of Irene Candide in northwestern Italy, between Genoa and the French border. And it's absolutely marvellous. I've got the oldest lamin pen in the world in that cave. If you want, I'll send you, I'll send you an off-print from earlier this year, which describes that. So, uh, Yes, please. That sounds, it sounds um, such, such an exciting thing to be able to do. Um, it's, it's the greatest fun in the world, yeah. Yeah. I, I've just retired, but I'm not stopping. I've got all, I will go back to Italy. I've got all kinds of other plans. I'm just going to keep working until, until they carry me out in a box feet first or, or <laughs> whatever form <laughs> I take when I go that way. I can understand working on something as exciting as that. I'd love to learn more. What, what else can zooarchaeology actually tell us then, other than perhaps about agriculture? What can it inform us about human society and culture? There's a lot of things, especially later in time, you can look at special deposits of things like feasting remains, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, Roman temples that have special deposits of animal bones, all that kind of thing. Uh, there's a really nice case in uh, medieval England where um, there's documentary records that, um, well, in the castles, we tend, well, we find a lot of domestic animals like pigs and sheep and all the rest of it. Um, there are sheep, there are cattle, domestic pigs, the castles and the high status sites tend to have more domestic pigs, which is perhaps slightly counterintuitive because we think of the pig as being a slightly low status animal and kind of beef on your table or something like that. But cattle and sheep in the medieval period can all be used for things other than meat. So you can get milk from them, you can get wool from the sheep, you can use the cattle to plough your fields with, and you only kill them when they're old, and you eat them as old animals, <clears throat> you know, mutton and old beef. Pigs have only got one thing. They don't milk, they don't pull ploughs, they don't grow wool. You eat them, and that's it. So by eating pigs, you are showing that you are rich enough to keep an animal, or a whole lot of animals, that you are going to use once only just for meat, and that's all. You don't have to kind of work them till they drop and all the rest of it. So there's status things like that. And then, of course, you're hunting red deer. And in the castles and the high status sites, you tend to get um, the rear quarters, the rear limbs of red deer. The ha the, well, they shouldn't be called hams because that's pigs. But OK, the haunches, the, the, the femur, the tibia, um, uh, the rear end, the meaty part of the red deer. And there are documentary records showing that, let me get this the right way around, the, uh, the huntsman was gifted the left forelimb of red deer that were killed when he was leading the hunt, the professional huntsman. And the forester who manages the game, he is gifted the right front leg. Okay, the huntsman was, in the medieval period, they got their own houses. And there are a few of those that have been excavated, and sure enough, they have front left legs of red deer. The foresters did not get their own houses, but lived in the villages with other people. And there are no sites with right front legs, very numerous of red deer. So the whole pattern kind of works out really rather neatly like that. There's a lot of, lot of games you can play that, that are really quite fun like that. Fascinating to hear more about that. Thank you. So 
in a place like Stonehenge, where we've found um, fe- evidence of feasting and pigs brought in from all over the country, how can we use zooarchaeology to tell us this or inform our knowledge on this sort of topic? Oh, we, we get into the harder sciences, uh, things like isotopes and all the rest of it, which are a kind of aspect of zooarchaeology. I do not directly do isotopes myself. I work very closely with people that do, and I tend to have to believe what they tell me because I can't really question too deeply what they do. But uh, there's all sorts of nice things you can do with isotopes. If you've been listening to Michael Parker Pearson, who's an old friend of mine, all about how the Stonehenge and Durrington Wolves cattle came from as far away as Orkney, take that with a bit of a pinch of salt. Uh, strontium isotopes are not that precise. What you can tell from those isotopes at Durrington Walls is that the the pigs, uh, the cattle particularly, came from a quite big area of southern England and perhaps south Wales as well. So they certainly are coming a long way, but there's no real sign that they come all the way from Orkney or anything like that, because the geology of Wales and Orkney and all the rest of it are far too similar. So you cannot exclude the fact that they were much closer like South Wales or something of that sort. Okay. So, so that- loads of fun. But um uh what I'll tell you another story that I happen to like. My, my, I had a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral assistant, Kurt Gron, who did a lot of this stuff. And um, he was looking at the cattle teeth from the earliest agricultural site we have in southern Sweden, a site called Almholm. And he can take a third molar. A cow third molar is a good couple of inches high when it's first formed. The cow will wear it down by chewing, okay, but you choose young ones that have just fully formed. And they form from the tip downwards over about 12 months. And they lay down micro layers of enamel, a bit like tree rings, going down as you go. So you can sample things like oxygen isotopes, dot, 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 down the tooth. And you are looking at the diet of that cow through time on about two or three weekly intervals. And it's fairly saying you can see the difference between summer and winter. You get kind of rises and falls, nice S-shaped curve as the animal goes from a summer diet to a winter diet. And if all the animals are born in April, as they're supposed to be until the last two or three hundred years, we know that we modern Europeans, we invented multiple birth seasons for cattle in order to maximize productivity. And we're the great farmers who've got this all sussed out. And everybody before that, they just had to make do with what nature provided, which is births in about April. So if births were in April, you can take six teeth and all the lines should be more or less parallel on your chart. But they weren't from Almhov. They went all over the place, right? The cattle at Almhov were being born over at least six months of the year. They had cracked nearly 6,000 years ago the art of making cattle give birth at different times of the year. Remarkably sophisticated. Probably, we guess, because uh, they want fresh milk in the winter. And cows will milk for about six months. So if, if you have your cow drop a calf in about September, you've got several months worth of fresh milk through the winter. And we know they were milking their cattle because we have the right age and sex proportions in the, uh, in the bones we find. And also the lipids, the fats in the ceramics show that they were storing fresh milk in the pots. So this was a very intensive cattle dairying economy from the very earliest days. And it's that discovery that these guys were not stupid. They were not primitive, um, but they were really sharp, clued up farmers with a lot of skill who knew exactly what they were doing. That's what I really enjoy, discovering that kind of thing. 
wow, it's truly incredible integrating the two approaches, looking at other evidence alongside the zooarchaeological evidence, and so they kind of play play together and cross and knit together, which is really really useful. Yeah. And when I mean, they all tell the same story, it's even better. <laughs> it's when they tell different stories, that's when you've got to start working out what the hell's going on. Yeah, that's one of the brilliant things about archaeology, really, that you can use so, so multifaceted <clears throat> yeah. so many approaches. Yes. And they're getting more and more of these approaches as we go. Uh, you know, there's any number. Um, just before we published our paper, we, we wrote it up last year uh, on, on Britain, um, there was um, a study in the University of York on human teeth and the calculus that is preserved on human teeth and they found traces of dairy products in the calculus in the earliest farmer's teeth as well so there's another line of evidence that they were actually using dairy products milk and cheese and so forth wow so very nice wow so if somebody wants to learn more about zoo archaeology where can they go what can they do and read and listen to to learn more about the topic now, there's several universities in Britain <coughs> that um, specialise in this kind of thing. Um, Sheffield is a good one. I recommend Sheffield. Various ones. Um, Southampton is good. Uh, I hope in Durham we, we are not bad either. So uh, have a look. Do your internet research. Uh, York is all right. Uh, do your internet research. Find out who's teaching this kind of stuff. Look at the kind of things they do. <clears throat> Some of their publications will be advertised on their website. If you want to read them, email them. There's nothing people like me like more than being flattered by somebody saying, please, could you send me a copy of your paper on such and such? I go, of course, and here's another four you can have. You know. So uh, we're only too happy. So do your research, find out where things are happening that you like the look of, and target your applications to university to those places. Well, thank you so much for, for that advice and taking the time to talk to me. It's been fascinating. Not at all. A huge thank you to Peter for taking the time to talk to me. And I really hope you learned a lot in this episode. I certainly did. And zoo archaeology is something I'd love to learn more about. And I hope you would too. If you have any questions, queries or suggestions for me or, the, or about the podcast, you can find me at the Sphinx Thinks on Instagram at sphinx underscore thinks on twitter and on my website www.sphinxthinks.com i hope you enjoyed the episode and next time i'll be talking talking to dr catalina copes about primates and chimpanzees once again returning to that topic see you then